Hello and welcome back to another episode of Politics on Draft with me, James Tabor. And me, Kartik Sawney. Join us as we go through the political news of the world and try to make sense of everything that's going on. Each week we'll talk about current affairs, political topics and offer some insight, research and opinions along the way. We'll also be bringing on some special guests with interesting stories and their experience of politics. So whether you're a massive politics nerd or someone who simply wants to know more, you're very welcome to join us every Friday from 8am, just in time for your morning commute. So get comfortable, get a drink, and remember, the best politics is always on draft. Hello, Kartik. Hello, James. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. I'm happy to be back. Um, yeah, there's a lot that happened. Oh, wait, before we get on to that, wait, before we get on to what, everything that happened um, over the last month and a well, almost two months now, um, what are you drinking? What am I drinking? Uh, I'm drinking Rioja. I'm right. Okay. Rioja. I was I was, um, I was expecting more. You know, I was expecting a lot. No. More to be fair, I haven't actually been drinking much because I'm kind of going through the annual January health kick at the moment. Whether that will last or not uh, is kind <laughs> of yet to be seen. But uh, we're kind of sticking with this. So this is my first drink of the week. I know, shocking, but um, yeah. So. That's what I'm drinking. What are you drinking? I'm having water. I'm driving later. I know I know. I expected to be drinking when I'm back, but I'm driving later and I don't want to drive drunk. So, I think that would be very well advised, to be totally honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I think we should just get straight into it. What has happened whilst we've been away? Well, um, we... we uh, so for... Uh, for the viewers at home, we tend to do like a brief every single episode. And so th- in this brief, we just kind of listed out stuff that happened in the last uh, month that obviously we weren't able to talk about. Um, so we'll just kind of go through them uh, in order and you can kind of tell the difference between stuff that uh, Kartik has uh, pulled out and stuff that me, mainly because his is more serious. Uh, <laughs> so why don't you start with uh, some of the stuff that you... Uh, kind of pulled out right so there have been riots in the brazilian capital there's been a lot Mm. in america which we'll come back to later tanks are going to be sent uh to ukraine from you from the uk us and germany there were prisoners executed in iran uh kosovo submitted an application to join the european union trump was found guilty of tax fraud in new york (laughs) there was a planned coup d'etat in germany and there was a FIFA World Cup. So if anyone says that December and January were slow news months, it's not true. There's a lot has happened. Yeah, and uh, James, what, what have you picked up? Well, I mean, let's just lit- let's just very quickly look at some of those things. I mean, riots in the Brazilian capital, obviously due to uh, the former president Jair Bolsonaro's supporters uh, being very unhappy and very similar to what we saw uh, in America what was it, maybe two years in 2021, was it? Yeah, 2019. Uh, was no, it 2020? It, it was 2020. No, but the riots oh, in the capital was, were 2021, was, I think. No, yeah, it was January, sorry, the election. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. And sorry, so, sorry. Um, and so hopefully this doesn't become a culture that we see across the world when, you know, results don't go in the way of a certain sort of demographic of people. Mm. Um, that was interesting, actually. There was another debate that I had with a friend because... There was a talk TV presenter, which I I don't know if I should name, um, but she was trying to insinuate that the culture of rioting after an election result or a referendum result came from Remain voters wanting to have a second referendum. And I just thought that was a bit stupid. Well, I think there's a difference between protest and literally storming into a building and attacking people. But anyway... Um, what do I know and uh, yeah World (laughs) Cup Uh, that obviously came with all its controversy we talked about it in the last episode of last uh, season Uh, so yeah and Trump is just doing Trump things although as we'll talk about in uh, a little while uh, Trump Trump is doing Zahawi things yeah Trump is doing Zahawi things Uh, (laughs) so other things that happened uh, migrant crossings have obviously become at the forefront of the debate in the UK at the moment, with increased pressure on Home Secretary Swella Braverman and Immigration Secretary Robert Jenrick 
to try and resolve the situation and uh well it's still going on and it's still a big issue and it's causing a lot of problems and it doesn't seem like many people have the answer at the moment uh what else have we got acquisition by of twitter i think we spoke a little bit about that that's kind of taken forward the rwanda plan was ruled lawful previously being ruled unlawful that's obviously quite big given the kind of the the pressure that swella bravman had and uh some of the kind of criticism against her due to its previously unlawful uh verdict uh, rising cases of covid19 in southeast asia um we pr- hope that it doesn't go back to what what we had before um Jacinda Ardern has recently quit as the New Zealand Prime Minister, which uh, is quite, um, well, I'd say it's quite a big blow for the international community because I think she uh, represented decency within politics. So uh, um, I I can't remember the person who's uh, taking over. Um, I I can't remember him either, but apparently um, he was making a big deal about being the first ginger Prime Minister so that's a big deal for all judges everywhere um strike strike strikes they continue the ucu has just announced their 18 day strike for universities across the country we've had the posties striking we've had nurses striking and i think the biggest biggest problem for this country is also workers of jacob's crackers have been also striking as well Really? Uh, causing a shortage over Christmas, meaning many people were unable to get their cheese and biscuits for Christmas Day. Isn't Big that the most middle class thing everywhere. I've ever said? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've I've also got on here Jeremy Clarkson, uh, probably had the cock up of the century, um, which I'd, is... I'd, To be honest, I wouldn't call it a cock up. I think, especially being a previous admirer of Jeremy Clarkson mm. in some circles, I think... I think that he's just a twat. Yeah, but you know, like you have to be very like we've seen with the likes of Andrew Tate how an influential person can oh. cause those sort of things, and you you never sort of know what is going to happen. I know what has happened here is you forgot to put Andrew Tate on there, uh, so yeah. I will I will. Enlighten the viewers who I'm sure are already enlightened. Uh, currently, Andrew Tate's in Romanian uh, sort of prison cell being detained whilst an investigation into potential human trafficking uh, carries on. And the reason why they got caught was because uh, the Romanian police knew where he was when he did a uh, like it was it was an announcement basically saying how Greta Thunberg is ridiculous for saying that he has a small penis um onto I'm, I'm i'm gonna i'm gonna quickly okay. jump in there it was really really interesting two facets of it one i did a little digging after and i don't usually look at andrew tate videos but i did a little mm. bit of digging based upon his previous videos and and um what he's been saying and from a legal perspective if if what he was saying in those videos was true he didn't mm. 110% he did it. He was talking about using something that's known as the lover boy method, um, where you where you convince women from across the world that you love them and convince them to move oh and then God. rope them into your circle. It was horrendous. And then the other part that I found quite interesting was when people older than us um, and mass media and politicians were starting to find out about Andrew Tate and their reactions. I thought, wow, like people, different age groups are really disconnected. And that that's just a separate thing that I found really, really interesting. I almost want to do an episode on it, but I, I don't think Andrew Tate is worth the, worth the time to do an episode on. But yeah, James, no, carry on. Probably not. Uh, I skipped over the, I, I mean, I called it the uh, Sweller Bravman uh, Holocaust Survivor bust up, but I think that's uh, uh, probably me being uh, sort of not so politically correct in terms of how I uh, talk about it. But basically, Sweller Bravman uh, was asked in, a, I think it was a constituency meeting um, mm. by a Holocaust survivor, will she sort of apologise for her comments uh, to do with immigration? And kind of she opened up about 
uh, a child has, of a Holocaust survivor. Yeah, a child of a Holocaust survivor, and opened up about her kind of experiences of kind of like her family coming to this country as immigrants, fleeing persecution, etc. And um, uh, it's interesting because there's lots of different media. So like there was a shortened media clip of that, which basically said showed the woman saying, would you apologize? And then it skips to Sweller Braverman just going, no. And that kind mm. of made the big media. But then there was a longer clip that kind of came out, which showed Sweller Braverman kind of taking a, a kind of more explanatory route to her saying no not that i that means are oh, brilliant yes what swallow braverman is bang on uh bang to rights there but just it kind of is interesting how sort of you got media that changes the perceptions and then the last thing i wanted to talk about was uh was well i i've written down harry's todger as i'm sure everybody's oh, heard on uh, <laughs> the the audio uh what would you call it the audio books uh versions of his uh book where he kind of talks about his life and um that also kind of came at the same time as his Netflix documentary that he did with uh, uh, Megan. Uh, and that's also caused a bit of a kind of, I wouldn't say a political uproar, but in terms of just like general discourse, a lot of people are kind of, I, I think a lot of people are kind of just saying, can we move on from this? And yeah, it's I mean, interesting. I, I, yeah. I didn't bother to engage with it. Um, I, I didn't bother buying the book hearing the book it, it i mean i think there are, there are so many more things going on in the world i mean in, in in the context of the uk we haven't covered it in our in our sort of wind up of everything that's happened but the cost of living crisis and the energy crisis is much more significant than prince harry and the royal family and their inner tips but, but what is quite interesting and I, I as someone who actually did watch the uh the uh, documentary he highlights about the timing of his um his nuptials with uh with megan that it was right when brexit happened and uh sort of racial tensions were sort of like all-time high and that kind of he was sort of using that as kind of an explanation as to why sort of the media especially was so sort of like harsh on Megan and I actually agree with him in that sense I do think that you know there is a race problem in this country especially within the media I think he 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 said some stat and I don't know where he got this stat from but he said some stat saying like 95% of uh British print media workers are white and so That's he said quite a significant stat and so he, that, yeah. he said if not racist then definitely unconscious bias, and I think that's quite and I, that's quite interesting, and I do appreciate that. But then there's other things about sort of what he's doing at the moment that are, are quite problematic. But that's kind of a big what happened in the space of of two months, and we'd love to talk about each and every issue more. But obviously, uh, politics never stops, and it would be very difficult for us to kind of. Uh, to do that and would be very extensive on our uh, timetables which are getting busy uh, busier and busier but I'm going to outline our new format because we're basically going to change the way that this uh, this podcast works so our podcasts are going to be around about 40 minutes long uh, now of the exception of today because we might kind of spend a little bit more time uh, just because we had to do this intro and uh, basically what we're going to do is we're going to do our sort of usual you know we talk about sort of just the kind of key issues of the week quite quickly but me and Kartik also going to bring a, a political story each and that can be from anywhere around the world and we have to kind of sort of present it and talk a little bit about it and that way just to kind of uh, keep each other sort of on our toes but also like interested in not just UK politics but also sort of like everywhere uh, around mm. the world um, and then what we'll do is we'll cut for a break and then uh, we will move on to if we have a guest with us which we've got quite a lot planned so please make sure that you uh, sort of stay tuned uh, for for that and uh, we will sort of have a half an hour discussion uh, with some guests and uh, we've we've got we've got some good guests planned haven't we uh, Carsick? Yeah it's gonna be good it's gonna be good. I'm very excited um, mm. next week we're recording with someone that would come out in in that same week. Am I right? Uh, it might be next week. It might be the week after. But we will keep you 
uh, in the loop. Uh, I'm just going to say environment, environment and protest. Mm. That's that, that that's that's the term. And if you want more of a hint, go back. Oh well, no, it wasn't in that episode. But if yeah, environment and and uh, and that's my dog barking in the background. Um, <laughs> you've you've teased that. You've teased them enough, Carter. You've teased them enough. Um, <laughs> right. Okay. But, but yes, and uh, so the way that our kind of schedule is at the moment is that we're going to be releasing episodes every Friday at 8am. And uh, so just in time for your morning commute, uh, as we've kind of always tried to uh, schedule it for for that. Um, but yeah, is there anything else that we've got to talk about admin-wise, Kartik, or is that kind of... Nope, I think we can go straight into uh, my story that I've picked out. Yes. Um, which is Nadim Zahawi's tax affairs. Yes. Now, Nadim Zahawi is currently the chair of the Conservative Party, although Rishi Sunak likes to refer to him as a minister without portfolio today mm. in PNQs. We never know what or who he might be by next week. Um, <laughs> that's just the state of politics. But the reason why we won't know uh, who he's going to be next week is... Well, he's currently under investigation by the Prime Minister's ethics advisor for tax avoidance. Mm. Um, the tax bill is connected, the tax bill in question, which he's being investigated for, is connected to shares in YouGov, which mm. is a polling company, which most people would be aware of, which Zahawi founded in 2000. Quite interesting. When it was, mm. Yeah. When it was founded, 42.5% of its shares were allocated to an offshore company registered in the tax haven of Gibraltar, which was described as uh, Zahawi's family trust, which is called Balshaw Investments. Yes, I heard um, this. According to Dan Needle, which, who's a tax expert, by 2018, YouGov had sold these shares for an estimated £27 million. Wow. In the UK, in most cases, UK residents are taxed on the profits that they make when the shares are sold, yes, uh, which yes. is known as... Capital gains tax. Hmm. Zahawi has denied being a beneficiary and denied any deliberate wrong, wrongdoing. This was flagged first around the time when Zahawi was Chancellor during the dying days of the Johnson government, but he was launching a leadership bid at the time as well because um, he's very loyal to Boris Johnson. That was sarcasm mm. if you didn't detect it. <laughs> um, Zahawi was required to pay a penalty to the HMRC. The exact amount has not been confirmed by him, but the same experts have estimated about five million pounds. Um, what's happening now is he's being investigated. As Sunak had heard, new information had come to light. Um, I find that hard to believe, considering I find it hard to believe that Sunak didn't know when he was running for leader um, the first time around um, that that Zahawi was going through these tax issues because mm. he was running quite a good. Uh, briefing operation on other Tory MPs. So yeah. maybe he knew, maybe he didn't, but we'll find out. But some MPs, some Tory MPs, have said he has to go. Some have remained quiet. Some have said he will go after he has been investigated. And at PNQs today, Sunak was clearly attempting to put distance between himself and Zahawi. Um, and it's unclear to me as to why Sunak didn't take this seriously when appointing Zahawi. Perhaps he's so out of touch he probably considers £27 million to be pocket change for him hmm. uh, because he just is that rich. Yeah. Uh, furthermore, Sunak is now under fire for A, not sacking him straight away, B, for ap appointing Solori Magnus, a financier who's an old Etonian who has previously worked for Robert Maxwell, the father of Guillaume Maxwell, yeah. and Sir Philip Green as an ethics advisor. So anyone who has previously been associated with, with the family name Maxwell should not be uh, appointed as an ethics advisor, but there you go. And C, the third reason why Sunak is under pressure is for his own tax affairs. Um, Sunak's press secretary after PMQs today has refused multiple times to say whether the PM has ever paid a penalty to the HMRC, stating the tax affairs of any individual whoever they are, are confidential. So for me, clearly from an impartial perspective as a Labour member, <laughs> um, it stinks of high hell. It, and again, for me, if you are in public office, especially if you're the Prime Minister, I think it should be required that you publish your tax, ret tax returns. Because, you know, Sakir Starmer made a really, really good point 
uh, at PMQs that if you are unable to manage your own tax affairs, how can you manage public money? So, yeah, and that's that's quite a good. I mean, that's a very it's a very interesting point. Um, at what point does that then become a transferable reason for opposition members of parliament, some of whom are fairly sort of, you know, like, I'd say quite like financially down to earth people. Um, so it's it's quite difficult to create an off the across the board, very fair system when it comes to tax declarations. Uh, I find this I find this a very difficult um, sort of a very difficult story because I think I believe in transparency in politics. And I think, you know, especially with, and this is something else that we forgot to highlight with the, uh, the Westminster accounts that uh, Sky News uh, kind of released talking about do- political donations to particular MPs. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's quite an interesting uh, topic and something that definitely needs to be more transparency over but I think this is probably going to take an inquiry or two to kind of understand the the underlying mechanisms when it comes to MPs and finance um, mm. I think that pretty much sums it up I'm going to go to uh, to my uh... real quick I'm going to ask you a question go that's on okay sorry I'm interrupting you yeah. we're, we're going to do an episode on transparency in politics this season mm-hmm. Um, we planned it, it's there, and we're going to yeah. reach out to some people as well. But do you think Zahawi will go? It's hard because in terms of his position, so he's, uh, I mean, he's been described as Minister Without Portfolio. He's the Conservative Party chairman. And so his kind of role is, and whilst you can argue, yes, he's in the cabinet, yes, he's got influence, his sort of principal role is very heavily sort of based on the Conservative Party and their kind of role within government and as a supporter. Um, so, it, yeah, it's it's quite difficult in terms, mm. like, I think if, if it was, say, the Chancellor, it would be, I think it would be an immediate, you know. But he was the Chancellor. Chairman. Yes, he was the Chancellor, but he's not now, is he? So No, but he is one of, okay, we could debate about this later, but he mm. is one of the most senior Tory MPs. He he is, mm. you know, if, if there's a massive crisis and Sunak needs to consult his colleagues, in that room with his advisors, Zahawi will be there. I think, sure. yes. And I'm I, introspecting, I, but... And I think probably the the route that Sunak will go, and you you correctly identified it today, is trying to distance his government with him. And you know the the whole like cons- Conservative Party chairman is not something that the PM and the, it's more of a convention that they're a member of the cabinet, um, a bit like PPS is a bit like um, you know ministers without portfolio, etc. And so. I, I, yeah, it's 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 very difficult, but um, we'll have to see. We'll have to see. Um, we'll have Fine. to see how Rishi Sunak. This is a good test as to how Rishi Sunak goes about the role of being the prime minister, and uh, this is probably his first biggest test, and we'll see what happens. Uh, my one's going to be a very quick one, uh, mainly for time, but also just because uh, uh, it's it's not that sort of big of a situation uh, to do with. Uh, I think it's pretty big. I think I think it's, I think big. it's big. Well, as an Indian, yeah, as an Indian. Uh, so basically, <laughs> Prime Minister Modi in India has used emergency legislation to block a BBC documentary uh, that was made on him. Uh, the documentary is an investigative uh, piece that looks at the difficult relationship between uh, the PM and the Muslim minority community in India. Uh, it includes secret memos uh, found detailing Modi's undiplomatic behaviour when interacting with British with the British government. Um, also, some sort of memos about uh, sort of riots that have happened and some sort of opinions that probably he would have hoped would stay in private but uh haven't i haven't personally watched it this is just the story that i uh i found uh critics of uh modi have said that this is just blatant censorship and totally sort of illiberal and you know is is kind of Modi's way to try and sort of implicitly send propaganda that all is okay I am sort of legitimate and uh, is basically a desperate attempt for him to kind of 
keep the confidence of uh, of the public. Uh, so, Karthik, I'm sure you can probably shed a bit more light into this, uh, given your background. So, what so what do you make of this uh, story? Um, I mean, b- before I go into what I think of it in terms of liberal politics and uh, again the F word, fascism. Mm. Um, I think I should give a sum up of what happened in Gujarat in 2002. Yes, of course. So Modi was the chief minister uh, of Gujarat, which is sort of like, um, you could say, a very, very powerful mayor of a state, like a, like a governor in America. And these riots, more than 2,000 people were killed. Um, most of them were Muslims. Uh, dozens of women were raped. In mm. uh, to be honest, what was one of excluding the British Empire, one of mm. the most religious massacres, uh, one of the the most the worst religious massacre in Indian history, um, mm. post nineteen forty seven, right? And it takes a lot in two thousand and two uh, to for the United States government to impose a ban on you for persecuting Muslims. But in two, in 2002, the US government, post 9-11, imposed a ban on Modi for his actions during the 2002 Gujarat riots. I mean, that just gives you an idea. If you have any idea of US politics, imperialism, empire, the way the war in uh, Iraq erupted and the impacts of, uh, on 9-11 for Muslim minorities in, uh, in America, you should... If you transport that onto what's uh, what what the impact was in Gujarat, then you can just about try to work out how bad it was. Um, in terms of what happened uh, recently in the blocking of the um, BBC documentary, I mean it's typical Modi government. And my my father, who is actually a supporter of Narendra Modi, who I constantly debate with. Uh, all the time will not be happy about me saying this, but it is fascist. He's he's uh, he's blocked about fifty tweets linking the the video of um, uh, of of the documentary, uh, and YouTube was in, in instructed to block any YouTube, uh, any video uploads as well. So, well, it's actually very similar to, uh, and this is something that Alistair Campbell brought up uh, in their podcast recently, which was uh, the the Home Office trying to basically. Uh, trying to sort of save Suella Braverman's uh, sort of public identity when it comes to kind of Twitter and was, uh, I think, asking for that shortened video I referenced earlier about the uh, the Jewish woman sort of confronting Suella to be taken down. I mean, it's mm. like, it's it's utterly crazy that in the sort of modern world that there is these... To be honest, of- I think this is much worse, James. I, I don't want to dwell on it too long, but this is much, much worse because he's quite literally not asked people to take it down yeah no of course yeah yeah, he's used emergency powers to force people to take it down Mm. and the suella braverman situation i sort of understand almost because it was a shortened video it arguably made her worse made her look worse than she had actually performed on the night the actual longer video which i've seen compared to the uh, to the shorter video is still pretty bad Mm. but and they haven't asked for that to be taken down. They asked. asked for the. I think. I, I think what's also interesting is the fact that still, it uh, the Indian population have been able to access these videos through social media, and obviously, there's one. That's one thing he just can't control. And, um, you know, it's. I think it's 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 so interesting in terms of that kind of dynamic of you know you can try and censor things but i think in today's age of you know social media it's practically impossible and what yeah. kind of goes around will you know come around and obviously the bbc documentary is is politically biased in the way they've kind of set up politically mm. you know politically and it but, is a western worldview perspective yeah right? of, of course but um yeah but so it's up to indian uh, citizens to kind of decide how they interpret that 
Yeah. I mean, we could dwell on this for ages. But of course, of course, of course. Let's move on. Yeah, so uh, we're now going to take a break. Uh, we've gone massively over time, but that's absolutely fine. It's the first episode. We will get the shorter and easier for you for your commute or whenever you're listening. Uh, we're going to be back after the break with returning uh, guest Josh, who's going to be talking about recent US developments and uh, how some people maybe need to start looking in their cupboards for some documents. We'll see you after the break. Hello and welcome back from the break. Uh, As promised, we are here with our returning guest for the, uh, well, you're here for the third time now, uh, Josh Naylor. Higgs, friend of the podcast and humbled, uh, friend of the podcast. humbled friend of the podcast, as you said last time. And uh, and uh, we're here to talk about what, what else will we talk about with you, Josh? We're here to talk about America. Um, so I believe you brought us some stuff to kind of monologue. So, but as I just remembered, because Carter gave me that look, what are you drinking first? I am drinking. Uh, a little bit of Hendrix gin and a little bit of little bit of Schweppes tonic. It's uh, it's delicious. And uh, once again, I am completely humbled to be back. <laughs> <laughs> it's an absolute joy every time. I'm well, at least you're drinking. We've got this guy here. He's like having nothing but water because he has to drive later, which that's ridiculous. <laughs> um, I think drinking whilst driving, it's just it's part of the fun no i'm totally not don't cancel me um yeah so uh josh what have you brought for us on american politics in 2023 right so yeah i thought i would discuss mainly how the recent speaker of the house debacle has unfolded um and it's a whole whole story that's been going on pretty much since the midterms last year, and it's stretched forward now into the speaker debate. And I just wanted to talk to you guys about how how much of a of a mess the both the Republican and now the the whole executive, legislature, and judiciary branch of the U.S. is functioning. Um, so as Recently, as a few days ago, Kevin McCarthy, um, now the 55th Speaker of the House, won by the absolute minimum amount of votes of 216 to get him into House majority leadership um, and get him the gavel in the the House of Representatives. The whole story effectively unfolded over a few days. But the last time something like this happened, where a group of voters for the majority winning party held out over the span of a fair few days was in 1859 um so sort of in the era of sort of queen victoria charles darwin and, and so on um so this is a really unprecedented unprecedented event and it's all focused on sort of 20 or so representatives who are representatives of a freedom caucus or the freedom caucus so the freedom caucus is effectively a small subgroup of republicans within the house that are made up of sort of former Tea Party uh, representatives from sort of 2008, 2010, and uh, the sort of what what has been termed the, the MAGA squad, uh, which were during the sort of capital riots, the insurrection and so on, were a group of uh, Republicans who were very outspoken in support of President Trump. So those sort of a, a few dynamics going on within that subset itself but they held out against McCarthy and it was coming for for quite a while he had he has previously actually made a bid for Speaker of the House he was minority leader for a bit um and he made a a small approach to nominee when the Freedom Caucus actually forced the former House Majority Leader um uh to resign and McCarthy didn't get any votes um because the Freedom Caucus basically said, we're not going to vote for you if you put your name forward, and it led to uh, Paul Ryan getting the the vote instead. Uh, McCarthy has got in this time um, by taking what seems to have been quite an aggressive carrot approach of basically guaranteeing some very powerful committee positions to these incumbent Republicans. So effectively, he's made having to make significant concessions to these Freedom Caucus members and effective far-right Republicans in some of the most powerful committees that the uh, 
house overseas. This includes sort of oversight, which is the investigative branch. It gets a huge amount of press and is now going to look into with quite huge detail uh, Biden's leaked documents uh, in, involving as, as well as the war in Afghanistan, the pull up from Afghanistan, COVID and so on. Um, it's chaired by, uh, well, it contains about six of the 20 members who voted against McCarthy. So uh, initially, and that's sort of so indicative of McCarthy just backing down and putting in sort of sort of Rampool, Lauren Boebert, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, genuine conspiracy theorists who are now in one of the more powerful committees, at least in terms of lobbying and so on, on the, on the, on, in the whole house. As well as that, the Judiciary Committee, uh, chaired by Jim Jordan, who was another prominent Freedom Caucus member and sort of founded the the collection movement within the House, um, which is a really important committee. And then also on the more sort of sad side, the uh, financial services, which are where all the banks come, it's responsible for oversight for banking. Uh, once again, a lot of uh, um, Freedom Caucus and far-right members found themselves on that committee. So... That's how they're how they're going to get it. The overall, the caucus itself was led in this round of voting more or less by Matt Gates. So he came in with uh, he's not actually the chairman of it, but he was the face of it. He was responsible for sort of how he was the one going in and out of McCarthy's offices during this whole period. Him, Marjorie Taylor Greene played quite a big part. But um, you can imagine that he being the face of it was the one directly talking to McCarthy, telling him what votes he's going to get or not. And that was seen throughout the process. You know, the vote McCarthy, the, the vote Gates often gave was the vote that often gained the most as the um, biggest opposition to, McCar- to McCarthy. So overall, it seems like not only do we have a Senate that can be uh, a democratically led, se- a Democratic Party led Senate that can now be uh, filibustered, very slight majority. You have a executive branch that now has to deal with a house that's also hugely fractured. And that's effectively where the um the the blah, 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 blah. nice um that's that's effectively uh where that sort of story is and now McCarthy's having to work with an incredibly divided uh congress and it's unlikely that there's going to be a huge amount done that obviously the huge issues now facing the house apparently are the debt ceiling um inflation as well as uh, now, it seems like this this pursuit of Biden and his leaked documents. I'll I'll start off because I know that um, Carter's got a, a lot more sort of like I, I guess like analytical questions, but I, I'm going to take this probably on behalf of a lot of our listeners who are probably more into UK politics, and so I'm going to try and kind of ask like a, a bit of a cross reference question. Um, for most people who follow UK politics, uh, we've seen nothing but a very polarised and divisive House of Commons for, I mean, I, I can't even begin to think how long. I mean, it's it's almost something that has become status quo with, uh, with British politics. So sort of, I guess it, it would it'd be quite for a lot of UK listeners probably thinking, oh, you know, how how does a polarised, uh, you know, House of Senate, House of Representative affect the, the bigger kind of US political construct? Yeah, so the legislative branch is really the most powerful one in the in the states. And that's the one that the House operates. Um, it's where bills are made. It's where they're born, effectively. Um, you have basically you have the House that votes. And then you have a selection of committees where representatives are chosen and put on by the uh, leader of the House. So it's Kevin McCarthy currently. And these committees have subcommittees, subcommittees doing investigations, hear from experts, etc. Build up bills. Those bills go from subcommittee to committee, committee to floor, floor votes from there onwards to the Senate. And then the Senate will have a vote and then it's on to the president who can veto and send it back. And then it begins, it begins another process. But that's effectively how they, they have that balance of power operating. The, um, this branch, the House, is the most important. You know, the the Senate is more showy. It's great for people who who want more limelight, but the like grime and the gruel of uh, processing and 
writing and then putting these acts forward is all done in the house so it's it's so fundamental to how the us proceeds and the fact right now that mccarthy controls not only such a small majority but also a majority that's fractured within itself means that who he makes concessions to he's he has to work in reality like he not only now has to work with the far right but purple seats so those new so new york new jersey seats which were democrat hold but last suffered the most losses in terms of those districts now to republicans who are purple republicans you know could be democrats under any other name um he has to deal with them as well who want to retain their seats and are worried that a bad faith republican freedom caucus which is what they're currently dealing with will unseat them in a few years time I wanted to come in and ask you a couple of questions. Most of them are faced towards the future, but I had a couple of questions about the vote itself. So I saw Matt Gates, and I think Lauren Boebert voting for Donald Trump. Now, Donald Trump has launched his presidential bid, and I thought it was pretty mental that these people were voting for him. And I understand that you can vote. Anyone can be Speaker of the House. You know, you don't have to be you don't have to be a representative to be Speaker of the House. Am I right, Josh? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So why the hell, politically, were people voting for Trump? Well, it's once again part of the the MAGA squad, which both Gates and Boba were part of. You know, these are these are Trumpists and just getting his name out there, adding more to the sort of... it. Uh, by that point, those votes being cast were almost because there was actually now pressure on McCarthy to just back off. Uh, a few votes in, a few days in, they were uh, a lot of his own base were being like, well, maybe we should replace him or maybe we should vote for that more moderate candidate. Um, and by more moderate, I obviously mean further right. Um, and Trump had endorsed uh, McCarthy as well. Yeah, yeah. So them, so yeah, Gates voting for Trump is typical of someone trying to get a bit more attention out of their, out of their, uh, the media, out of C-SPAN, which was the um, broadcaster for the event. and. Um, yeah, it was it, another another sort of showmanship vote, but they they uh, how it ended was they abstained. They voted uh, basically present, and that was how um, McCarthy won. They didn't actually vote for him, but their vote of just being present eventually gave them the, the necessary. But do, but do you think that the, the likes of the, of Matt Gates are also kind of thinking, you know, Trump's just faced a bit of a you know a legal battle at the moment, you know there's serious questions as to his competency within US politics. Somebody's going to have to kind of take command of the MAGA squad, as you call it. Maybe that's me. And if I say Donald Trump on the kind of biggest political floor in the country, maybe that might work in my favour in terms of getting sort of these polarised voters, the same people that we saw storming the Capitol in 2021, to kind of think hey maybe matt gates is the future of this kind of new sort of alt-right movement yeah i i see that to a certain extent i would say that a lot of these a lot of these seats especially you know georgia 14th and so on where these deep deep red states which will never vote which won't vote blue for for a long long time if ever um are are have quite a strong base of people who still believe Trump will be running in 2024 and don't understand the sort of the power that now opposition candidates such as Ron DeSantis hold. I think Gates is in a safe seat and not only that, but he's quite, quite a comfortable position. I, I, he, he's a very vocal member of the Republican party, but whether or not he can stage, he thinks in his mind that he could stage at all a competent, president uh, republican nominee campaign is is perhaps perhaps to be seen but from my understanding i think it's if if trump continues down this path and uh ron DeSantis continues on his trajectory it's unlikely that it'll be anyone other than the floridian governor who's uh taking up the mantle for the republican nominee mm. james if you don't have any more questions i just want to wrap up with two last questions yeah no of course finish. of course so number one is Hakeem Jeffries. And I, I saw his speech and I was quite impressed. Uh, not that I hold any weight in American politics, but uh, nor in British politics, nor in any form of politics ever. Um, but is he or is he not 
a future presidential candidate. I'm not saying 2024, but his A to Z speech was very, very good. I can see him as a future presidential candidate. I can see him as a future president. Do you see that happening? And the second question is, how does all of this reflect on the unity of the Republican Party going into 2024? Right. Some tiny questions you've asked to wrap up quickly. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, firstly, uh, fantastic. You know, this is a turning point for the Democratic House, um, Democratic Party's House face. It's been Nancy Pelosi since 2002. So you have to imagine this is going to be a completely new look and in as so far as um how the sort of one of the most important uh faces in american politics conducts themselves jeffries is a new york representative um he's phenomenal rhetoric you saw his speech it was sort of 15 minutes shorter than um mccarthy's but phenomenally better you know mccarthy's dragged it um jeffries wasn't afraid to use exciting and forward-thinking language he's extremely popular amongst the um democratic house and uh, elected almost unanimously he was endorsed by both of the former um leaders of the including the whip of the former uh democratic house he's going to be a, a phenomenal candidate i could see him absolutely running um a few years down the line God knows the Democratic Party is really struggling for young, effective uh, candidates currently, um, at least exciting ones. You know, you've obviously got your your uh, Bernie Sanders packed with AOC and a few others who are very, you know, very popular amongst youth voters. But whether they're popular enough to win a Democratic primary is is perhaps a fair, a fair while away. In terms of Republican unity, um, the Republican Party's been like this for a, for a long time. I would say since 2008, there's been this split between those who are um, not only socially conservative, but economically sort of very liberal um, and, the, and the more basic, um, well, not the more basic, but the more uh, standard Republicans. Uh, this will sort of, like I said, the Freedom Caucus has been around for a while and Trump hasn't helped, but alleviate the concerns of a very small major minority of Republican um, Republican uh, congressmen. But from now, I can only see the split becoming more pronounced. And especially, I think the moment this Republican um, primary is done, uh, coming up for the election of whoever it will be, Trump, DeSantis, or whatever, it will more or less silence it because they know for a fact that it's hurting their voting. They know projecting Trump um, in a lot of these seats. The remain the main pack of the Republican uh, delegates and congressmen know for a fact that Trump hurt their votes uh, in uh, last year for the House. And I don't think they're going to risk losing again. Um, come, uh, come, whoever they're running against, because whatever the Democratic Party is going to look like for the presidential election um, coming up is another is another whole question. But yeah, I hope I hope that somewhat illuminated that issue i have one last question and i know those that i said those were the two last questions but this this is a this is this is going to end it on a positive note positive or not humorous note at the very least george santos oh my god please tell us about him (laughs) in the shortest way possible in the shortest way possible so george santos is this phenomenal um, congressman who has an adoption center, started his own business. He um, owns multiple properties and he is just one of the most phenomenal congressmen ever to grace the Republican Party. Or he would he's be. Also Jewish. He's also Jewish. Exactly. And all of that would have been phenomenal had any of it been true. George Santos was living out of his sister's apartment, had never attended any of the colleges he said, including Baruch College, Baruch College, um, which boasting about was an interesting take, you know, but it was a phenomenal cascade and the lies just kept coming. And um, he's anyway, the it's a, it's very funny, but he has also ended up on two committee positions um, and he's not being forced by the uh, Republican Party to step down either. So it's a uh, it's as funny as it is. He is now responsible for at least part legislation coming through this serial liar um and like it's it's hysterical but um he's uh his story i i i can only imagine his story is going to be a source of phenomenal mirth 
um, amongst oh. Democratic candidates uh, and the Democratic populace alike. I'm I'm just going to quickly ask something as well, and it was kind of it's it's talking about the whole kind of because you said you said something that you, you said you were pretty sure that nothing but the Floridian governor DeSantis will mm. be the next. Uh, the next Republican candidate. Mm-hmm. And my my question is, do you think that DeSantis will be able to kind of kind of polarize the, the, the typical supporters of the kind of make America great again rhetoric in the same way that Trump was able to will he be able to kind of incite the populist fire that kind of lives within these sort of demographic people? No. And the scariest part is that's not necessary anymore. Interesting. Um, DeSantis has normalised a, a sort of competent, um, competent, malicious nature that is that is quite like quite threatening and quite scary, I imagine, for Democrats. Mm. So DeSantis is a, a fun, like intelligent on top of things. He's uh, he's hugely popular in florida no matter how much he gerrymanders districts it doesn't really matter because he is popular vote wise extremely popular and he is a a leading national figure he knows exactly how to play to the media and fox news which is quite frankly the only media you really need to appeal to as a republican candidate and he's um and he's uh he's he is such a fundamental danger to democracy in the united states that mm. i can i i can only say that with with trump it was it's easy to define populism when it's you know screaming it down your face but <laughs> screaming it into your face even but what's terrifying about DeSantis is he doesn't need to um he's he's relatively calm for a republican um but more importantly he is just overwhelmingly competent well organized in his debates he's got a he hasn't got in him sort of he's got a politician's attitude you know he won't deny stuff he's not outward climate denier he's um but people will people will vote for him because i think i don't know what democratic can what the democratic party could pump out who wouldn't struggle in debates against him Mm -hmm. um and he's like I've, I've said it before, but he's a real, like, oven-made Republican candidate. He is nigh on perfect for that nomination, and he could he could potentially get in get in very well. You know, I wouldn't I wouldn't be I would be surprised, but he's almost Reagan in his in his sort of yeah. what I can imagine would be his popularity um, come voting. But you know, the U.S. is an autocratizing nation, so it's moving further away from democracy. Um, currently, and that's important to note when you're thinking about how much damage DeSantis could do uh, come the next election. Josh, thank you very, very much for coming on. Mm. Next week, we've got some very, very, very interesting people coming on the podcast as well. I'm sure Josh will enjoy listening to it, and our listeners at home will also You could almost it. say you'd be glued to your screen. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> we might do that shit at the start, but we'll see. Yes, and thank you very much for coming back for season two. Uh, we hope that we can exceed all of uh, your listeners' expectations uh, this season. And yeah, it's uh, goodbye from me, James. Goodbye from me, Kartik. And we'll see you next week. See you later. Bye. Thank you.